Well, let's pray, and then we'll get into Proverbs. Uh, Father, we just thank you for your word. Uh, we thank you for the way that it shows us that you have dominion over all of our lives, uh, that there's not any part of our lives that, that is hidden from you. Uh, there's nothing uh, in, in our day that's not yours. There's nothing in our world that's not yours. And Lord, as we look through the pages of this book and hear the ways that you're, you're claiming your rights over all of our life, I pray that you would get, make us people who love that and who yield to that and find the joy that there is in submitting to your design. Uh, Lord, as we look at this book of Proverbs, I pray that more than anything, we would see you, uh, that you would deepen our heart for your gospel, uh, deepen our faith in your cross, in your love for us as sinners, in the way that you've redeemed us, and then that you would activate us as missionaries in the world that you've put us in. And I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as you read through the Bible, um, which is a, a pretty spiritual book, you go through and you find that it's got an awful lot of wisdom for all of life. You know, we tend to think very compartmentally, where we think that we've got a bunch of different lives. Like, for example, we've got a work life that's over here, and a school life that's right here, and then a home life that's here, and a sex life, and then a spiritual life. That there's this, this category, just maybe one bucket out of 15 buckets in our lives, is our spirituality. And so, so that spiritual bucket sits empty, and during the week, at some time, we need to fill that bucket with a spiritual commodity. Um, you know, all week long, we're trying to fill those other buckets. We're trying to keep them full. And we're trying to make sure that work is right and home is right. And, and all these buckets are separate. And then when it comes to Sunday morning, we need to fill that bucket with spirituality. We need to find a way to, to feel like we're inspired. And so we go and we shop for a religion. And we look around at all the different churches, and we're looking for a place that has contemporary music or traditional music. Uh, we're looking for a place with long sermons or short sermons. Keep shopping. Uh, we're looking for a, a casual place, a formal place. We've got all these ideas. That this is what I need to fill this one spiritual bucket. And we treat our faith just like this one commodity, and it has this place in our life that's pretty isolated. It doesn't spill into the other buckets, and we just want to make sure that we keep that one filled all the time. So we treat Christianity a little bit like a yoga class, where you go through your week and, and do your thing, and then you take your yoga class, and then when you leave the yoga class, you're not thinking about ways that you can live out the implications of your yoga class in all of life. Um, it's just a, an isolated part of your life. You do that, and then you leave there. And we tend to treat church, we tend to treat Christianity like that, um, where it's this class I take on Sunday mornings, it's this experience I have, and then I go out and jump into a different part of my life that stays compartmentalized and that doesn't get touched by that spirituality. But when we think that way, we're really not thinking like Christians. Uh, Christianity is actually very unique in this regard, where it doesn't see the spiritual side of life as totally separate from the material, physical side of life. Uh, we see in the Bible Jesus Christ claiming to be Lord of everything, claiming to be the one who created everything, and claiming to claim every square inch of his entire creation. Uh, that we're not supposed to live this life with a bunch of different buckets, and spirituality is one of those buckets. We're supposed to have that gigantic gospel bucket overflow and fill all the other buckets. So we become people who aren't just shopping for a spiritual commodity on Sundays, but we're looking for ways all during the week to live out the implications of the message of the cross of Jesus and to live out his rule and his reign in all those different areas. So when we go to work, we're the people who are centered on and built on the gospel at work. And we want to live out the implications of the gospel among our coworkers and the way we do our business. 
When we go home, we want to live out the implications of the story of God and what he's doing with the world and the story of his gospel in the way that we lead our, our homes and the way that things are structured there. Uh, when we go back to our family, the way we raise our kids, everything in all of life is supposed to be spiritual, not a separate bucket that's off in its own little place. You know, if, if you're new to Christianity and you start to read the Bible, you might be expecting it to read a little bit like a manual on Eastern meditation, where, where you read through and, and you page through and you're expecting to hear, this is how you enter a transcendent state this is how you can learn to, to speak in spiritual ease. This is how you can fill that one spiritual bucket. But when you're, you read through the Bible, and especially in the book of Proverbs, it's really got its hands dirty. I mean, the book of Proverbs isn't just saying, here's how to meditate, here's how to transcend. It's saying, here's what we're supposed to do with work. And here's what we're supposed to do with our words. And here's how to handle loans and wine and food, and family. All these different things are talked about in the book of Proverbs, and it's not that Proverbs is this non-spiritual book. It's this book that says this is what it looks like to live out Christian spirituality. This is what it looks like if Jesus is the Lord of your life. And as we page through Proverbs, we just see Jesus walking through those pages, claiming every single part of our lives. And so as we've talked through the different topics that this book talks about, we're really just seeing what it looks like to live out the implications of the, the lordship and the reign of Jesus over us. And today we're going to be talking about what the book of Proverbs says in the area of our money. So, so it's going to get real awkward real quick. Um, I, know, I know we're not supposed to, to talk about that. I know it, it, it's one of those topics that we're supposed to say this is a separate bucket. Jesus isn't allowed to point to our wallets and say mine. He can claim everything else. But this is the last part of us that tends to be redeemed. We tend to be very controlling over our finances. It gets real awkward to talk about it. And I know you're probably expecting this will just be a message on giving, and the, the theme of this message will be you should give more. Uh, we'll get there. But this is going to be a much broader view of what the Bible really says about wealth, about what it says about what God has given us uh, when it comes to, to our money. And to start, we just have to remember that the story of the Bible is not the story of us being trapped in this material realm and then God coming down to us to rescue us from the material realm and put us in the ultimate realm that's spiritual. Um, there, there are a lot of religions that say everything that's material is bad and everything that's spiritual is good, and we reach our ultimate state, we reach nirvana someday by being liberated from this material realm. The material realm just goes away, and we just kind of float as a spirit on the clouds with angels and harps, and, and that's our eternity. But the story of the Bible is of God creating the material realm and calling it good, us sinning and wrecking it and bringing a curse on it, and then God coming to us to redeem his people but then also in the very end of things, to redeem his world. So the material realm is not bad. Material stuff is not bad. When the Bible talks about wealth, it doesn't talk about wealth like it's a bad thing. Um, here's Proverbs 10.22. It says, The blessing of the Lord makes rich, and he adds no sorrow with it. So Proverbs here says that one way that God blesses people is by giving them some material wealth. And by the way, this is how he has blessed all of us. I mean, we never feel like we're rich because we always have those people, well, I'm not as rich as that guy, but really compared to the rest of the world, we're there. We've been blessed. We are blessed people where some of the poorest people in the United States are far better off than, than the middle class in an awful lot of countries in the world. So we've been blessed with a certain degree of wealth, and the Bible does say that God blesses his people with material provision. Now, again, we said this a couple weeks ago. Proverbs is not a book of 100% promises. 
Uh, for example, we, when we talked about work and laziness a few weeks back, we quoted the Proverbs in chapter 6 where it says, a little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed man. Um, that's usually true, that if we're lazy, we become poor. But sometimes a little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and you're in Congress. Like it, it, It's not like it's, there's this 100% sure this is the direction things are going to go for us. It's just a truism. It's saying this is generally the way things are. And here the, the Bible says that wealth is not a bad thing, it's a good thing. And God does tend to bless people with some mater, material wealth. Which means that there are righteous, wealthy people who can be wealthy without any sorrow for getting there. But it's also true that there are evil, wealthy people. Proverbs 22, 16, it says, Whoever oppresses the poor to increase his own wealth or gives to the rich will only come to poverty. So some rich people are rich because they've oppressed the poor. They've mistreated others. They've stepped on people to get to where they are. We sometimes make the mistake of assuming everybody who's wealthy is in that same category, which the Bible doesn't teach. But it does teach some people got there by treating people badly. I heard a talk this week where uh, Andrew Carnegie was mentioned, the steel guy. And he, he built these huge steel mills and made the equivalent of billions of dollars. But the people who worked in his steel mills were people who were working 12 hours a day, seven days a week, and they were paid as little as he could possibly pay them. Now, he made himself feel a little better by giving a ton of money away, and usually to things that put his name on them, like colleges and libraries. But here was a guy who at least part of his wealth was gained by oppressing people underneath him and treating people badly. So that can happen. Uh, Proverbs 15.27 says, Whoever is greedy for unjust gain troubles his own household, but he who hates bribes will live. So some people are wealthy because they've been shady. They lie, they steal, they take bribes, they deceive, and that's how they got there. So in the Bible, we see people who are rich because of hard work, and we see people who are rich because they stole which means that we can't put all of the rich in one category. Kind of like when you watch the Olympics. There are people in the Olympics who win gold medals because they have trained their entire life for that event. From the time they were little children, they worked hard all day long, uh, just plugged away, went at it, overcame adversity, and then they get a gold medal. There are also people who win gold medals by doping, like China does. I'm kidding, um, but sort of. Um, so, so there are people who get those, and nobody wants to sit around and say, you know what the problem with our country is? All those gold medal winners. I mean, they're, they're terrible people. I mean, nobody's sitting around this week going, you know what's wrong with America, Missy Franklin? No, like we, we love her. We see, here's this girl who worked really hard and started winning gold medals. And so, so that's a good thing. You can get a gold medal by working hard. You can also get there by cheating. So as Christians, we should never have a class warfare mentality that assumes that all rich people are evil. Um, there are evil rich people in the Bible, like Nebuchadnezzar, uh, who, who was awfully evil and got all the way to the top, got very rich and, and by stepping on people. There are also people in the Bible who are rich because God blessed them and because they worked hard, like Job. There are people in the Bible who are poor because of sin, like Nebuchadnezzar. He falls and then he ends up getting poor. Uh, there are people in the Bible who are poor because God has designed poverty as part of his plan for them, like Job, who, who lost everything and was eventually poor. So we don't want to equate righteousness or wickedness with wealth or poverty. Uh, even in the Trinity, when we look at God himself, we see the Father, who he does pretty well. He owns everything. Uh, he, he made everything. He, he's rich. 
And then we have the son who made himself poor for a time so that we could be given the wealth of a relationship with God. So wealth and poverty don't make us moral or immoral by themselves. So there, there are righteous wealthy people and unrighteous wealthy people. There are also righteous poor people and unrighteous poor people. Listen to Proverbs 23, 4. It says, don't toil to acquire wealth. Be discerning enough to desist. So some people are poor because they've decided that there's something more important to them than their wealth. That they're in a field or they're in a job where they could put in 80 or 90 hours a week for the rest of their lives, work really hard, exhaust themselves, get high blood pressure, lose the hearts of their kids, lose the hearts of their family, invest everything in gaining that wealth, and they could maybe make it. But if they're wise, they say there's something more important than that wealth. And so they accept less and maybe work less hours, have lower blood pressure, get more time with their family because there's something more important to them. So there are righteous reasons to be poor. Another one, Proverbs 22.1 says, A good name is to be chosen rather than great riches, and favor is better than silver or gold. So some people are in a situation where they could make a lot more money if they just cut corners when it came to their integrity. They could lie a little bit, steal a little bit, be just a little bit shady, and they say, you know, something's more important to me than my money, and that's my integrity, that's my name. So they decide that they're not going to run after wealth, and they end up being more poor. Uh, Shelly Rosario is not here at this service, but I got permission to, to talk about him. Her dad uh, went home to be with the Lord this last year, and Gary Zastro was a guy who always had a smile on his face. He was uh, just a happy guy, all kinds of joy, and he didn't have a ton of money at all. Uh, at his funeral, person after person, including his own kids, were all standing up to talk about what an awesome guy he was, how uh, he spent his vacation time working in different ministries at their church, doing missions-type work, He loved investing himself into coaching Little League, spending time with kids. He invested himself in his family in a big way, and money just didn't really have a hold over him. He died, and he didn't die a rich guy when it comes to his material possessions, but he was a guy who was wise enough during his life to say, you know, I need a certain amount of money, but there are things that are more important to me than money. And he died without that financial wealth, but had an awful lot of wealth when it came to his kids and his family and and all the good that, that he did while he was around. We've got to realize that there are more important things than money, and people who realize that sometimes have less money, and they're more poor. Um, I've never been a guy who's cared much about clothing fashion, and uh, I know you're going, that's a shocker. I thought um, (laughs) I could have sworn that you were just a GQ subscriber, but no, believe it or not, I've never really cared at all. And um, (laughs) a couple weeks ago in staff meeting, we were just sitting around talking, we were like, why do we have all these cool people come into our church? Like, we have all these uh, hipsters and well-dressed people, and uh, Michael Barone, who's there, he points at me, and he says, well, look no further. And I'm, uh, I'm wearing my 1989 gym teacher shorts and tube socks, and it turns out, Michael explained this to me, tube socks haven't been cool since the 80s. I've, uh, I've been buying a brick of these things every year, and I just never paid any attention to fashion, never paid any attention to style whatsoever, just kind of wear what's clean and what's in the drawer, and because I don't care too much about it, I'm not fashionable and stylish. Sometimes if we don't care too much about financial wealth, we just don't have as much of it because we're not running after it and it doesn't bother us. And I'm committed to tube socks and gym teacher shorts. And I hear the 80s are coming back around. I never realized that they left. And so I'm going to be cool again in a couple of years here. But just because that's not a desire that I've got, it's not something that drives me. It, it affects how much fashion I have and how much we spend on clothes and what I look like. Um, that will happen in the financial realm. 
if it doesn't matter that much to us, we may have less, less of it. So there are people who are poor who are poor for righteous reasons. But there are also, and we saw this a few weeks ago, people who are poor because of sin. Uh, Proverbs 12.27 says, Whoever is slothful will not roast his game, but the diligent man gets precious wealth. So some people are poor just because of, of laziness, which we talked about a few weeks ago. Uh, other people, and here's this proverb again, Proverbs 22.16 says, Whoever oppresses the poor to increase his own wealth or gives to the rich will only come to poverty. So there are people sort of on the, the tail end of that verse who are reaping what they've sown. They're the Bernie Madoffs of the world who, who were billionaires and now are very, very poor because they sinned to get to the top and there was a fall, a crash, and they dropped to the bottom. So, so this is the way things can be. There are righteous and unrighteous, rich and poor people, which means that we shouldn't judge people. We shouldn't assume that money tells us something about somebody's character on the surface. We also need to avoid the twin errors of the prosperity gospel and the poverty gospel. Uh, the prosperity gospel says that every single person who's right with God, God's going to make rich. He's going to give you all kinds of money. It's always going to happen. And riches are a sign of righteousness and God's blessing. We avoid that error, but then we also want to avoid the error that says everybody who's poor is poor because they're righteous. That's not true either. So, so when the Bible talks about wealth, it talks about it as a good thing, but not an ultimate thing. And we have to be careful that we're not judging people based on the wealth that they have. But we do need to say this. Wealth is, is a good gift from God that we tend to turn into a God more than many of his other gifts. The Bible talks about a few of these different things where it doesn't call certain issues sins, but it does warn us that we're very good at making them sins, making them idols, and putting them on, at, on the throne of our lives. You know, three of those things that Proverbs talks about are, are women, wine, and wealth, where, where there are plenty of people who uh, take the good gift of a, a woman and make her their God. There are plenty of people who take the good gift of wine and become alcoholics. There are plenty of people who take the good gift of wealth and become driven by it. It tends to have this spiritual power over us, and there's a certain energy that comes with making money that's unlike some other gods. Uh, about eight years ago, I was dumb, and uh, I thought that it would be a good idea for me to teach myself to trade currencies, and I thought I had it down, um, where, where I got downloaded this trading currency platform, and I thought, okay, well, I can figure this out. I was watching the news and basically buying and selling uh, the dollar based on what I thought it would do when, when uh, it was actually election returns were coming in, and, um, and I did great for like an hour. I turned um, $500 into $1,800 in an hour, and I was thinking, man, if I could just triple my money in an hour, I do that once a week, and, and I'm good, because my fantasy is how awesome would it be someday to be able to do ministry for free and, and not have to take an income from it for all and I was, at all, and I was thinking that would be absolutely perfect. And then I tried for another hour, and it dropped back down to five, and, and immediately just backed away. Because there was some kind of strange, and looking back, I don't even know why I did well to begin with. I'm looking back almost feeling like it was maybe even sin and gambling or something. It just, but there was this strange um, Gollum's Ring type of power that, uh, that, that making money had. And, and I don't know if you've been there where you buy a stock and it shoots through the roof and you feel this energy that comes from it. I can't really describe what that was, but I experienced it and it was almost dangerous. And wealth, while it's a good gift from God, there are plenty of ways that we can use it in some bad ways. We can put it into the place of God in our lives, and it can do all kinds of damage. One big thing that we've got to remember is that wealth is a good gift, but it's an absolutely terrible God. 
And if you compare the gift of wealth to Jesus Christ, Jesus wins every time. Listen to Hebrews 13. He says, Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So he says, one of the reasons that we have to watch out for loving money is because money leaves, but Jesus doesn't. And Proverbs says this all throughout the book. Proverbs 27, 24 says, Riches do not last forever, and does a crown endure to all generations. One of the things we're told is that wealth is a gift from God, but that it goes away. Jesus doesn't go away. But what we tend to do when we make wealth our God is we get our hearts all wrapped up in it. My identity becomes, I'm a wealthy person. My identity gets wrapped up in my status symbols, the things that I have, the car that I drive, the house that I live in, the school that I can send my kids to. My identity gets all wrapped up in those things, and to lose those things can become incredibly painful. The heart gets broken, and we get wrecked when that wealth flies away, like the Bible promises it will. I remember uh, when I was in college, I was in in Christian college, and there were some girls in our Christian college who were, were nice girls, because everyone's nice in Christian college, but they were, um, they were notorious for getting into relationships for about two weeks, where they would, would date a guy for a couple weeks, and then at the end of those couple weeks, they would break their heart and move on to another guy. And it was, uh, everybody kind of knew it. You, you could see it from the outside. But from the inside, guys, because we're dumb, would get into those relationships, and we would say, this is, this is great. Everything's fantastic and exciting. And the guys are starting to name their kids in their mind, and they're starting to plan for that wedding next fall. Everything's looking like it's heading in the right direction. Everyone on the outside is going, this thing's going away. Um, she's, she's one of those two-week girls, and this whole thing's going to be gone, and his heart's going to be broken. We've seen it before. We're going to see it again. And wealth is like that. Trying to find a sense of peace and security and love and wealth is like trying to find a future in someone that everybody knows is committed for a couple of weeks. Our wealth has that kind of commitment to us, where it's temporary, it eventually leaves, which makes it an absolutely terrible God, because Jesus never leaves. Also, wealth can provide for an awful lot, but it can't provide for our ultimate needs. Listen to Proverbs 11, verse 4. He says, Riches do not profit in the day of wrath, but righteousness delivers from death. And we will stand before the judgment judgment seat of God. We will answer for our lives. And if we think that we'll be able to bribe him, if we think that our wealth will be able to get us a good return, we're wrong. He says our riches won't do us any good on that day. Proverbs 11:7 says when the wicked dies his hope will perish and the expectation of wealth perishes too. So wealth doesn't buy us what's ultimate, which is a right standing with God. The gospel of Jesus does. And Jesus looks at us when we're sinners and absolutely freely he gives his life to us, he dies for us, he's buried, he rises again so that whoever believes in him has life. You don't need to be rich to have it. Uh, You don't need to be poor to have it. You just trust in Jesus Christ and you have everlasting life. Your ultimate needs get met by Jesus. We tend to treat wealth like it can meet our ultimate needs and it just can't. Our riches won't do any good for us in that day of wrath. The New Testament says the same thing. 1 Timothy 6, verse 17, it says, As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. So see how he says riches are uncertain, Jesus isn't. Riches are not ultimate treasure, 
Jesus is. Riches are not truly life. True life is to be had in Jesus. So he calls rich people like us to be generous, to share, to build our identity on something other than our wealth, to build it on Jesus Christ. Proverbs eleven twenty eight says, Whoever trusts in his riches will fall, but the righteous will flourish like a green leaf. So we're not supposed to trust in our wealth. We're not supposed to wrap our hearts up in it. Wealth is supposed to be used like a tool. It's not supposed to be courted like a wife. And we make big mistakes when we put those things in the wrong place. Um, We need to learn to be people who love and worship Jesus, who get our satisfaction from Jesus, who get our identity, who get our peace from the gospel, and then money can start to take its right place in our lives. You you saw this in Lord of the Rings, where, where Gollum's ring consumed him. He had to have it, and and because he had to have his precious, when he got it, it absolutely destroyed him, and it turned him into the monster that he was. Then you have Frodo, who recognized the power of that ring, but he wore it very loosely, wore it around his neck, put it on when necessary, but tried to avoid putting it on. He recognized that he had a very powerful thing and made sure he kept it in the right place. Gollum saw the power of that thing, and it consumed him and destroyed him. So this is something that we just have to be careful with. We have to make sure that we realize money won't make us happy. It's not a good God. It'll never leave us fulfilled. On the other hand, we have to make sure we don't think that money is bad, because if we start to think that, we'll start to think rich people are bad, and we start to look down at everybody else. We have to put money in its right place in our lives, use it as a good servant, but recognize that it's a terrible God altogether. If we aren't satisfied in Christ, then we'll be ruled by our money, we'll be depressed when we don't have it, and we'll have it in the wrong place. We, we like to have God in our pocket to use when it's convenient and money on the throne of our lives, but the Bible calls us to have God on the throne of our lives and money in our pocket to use as a tool. When we reverse those two, we do all kinds of damage. So what does it do if we do believe in the gospel? How, how does it change the way we handle and view wealth? And the book of Proverbs has tons of wisdom for how to manage money, what to do with money. The Bible says a ton about it. Jesus talked about money somewhere around 15 times more than he talked about sex. So this is obviously a very big issue and one we don't like to bring up in church because honestly, we don't want to make it look like we're begging and we don't want to make it look like we're manipulative and shady. But the Bible says an awful lot about this part of our lives and Jesus does lay claim on it and say that it's mine. So if we're satisfied in the gospel, what does it do? First of all, and these are in your bulletin here, being satisfied in the gospel frees us from having to sin or to overwork to get wealth. Again, Proverbs 23, 4, don't toil to acquire wealth, be discerning enough to desist. If we know that money will never make us happy, that it'll never satisfy us, then we can say, okay, that's enough, I'm done. When, when they come and they offer you the promotion at work, it won't be an automatic, yes, I'll take it because money's my God and that's the only answer. You'll be able to be discerning. You'll be able to say, is this worth it? Um, is this, what sacrifices will I have to make? Because money's not my only bottom line. I'm trying to balance family. I'm trying to balance church. I'm trying to balance life. I'm trying to make sure that money's in its right place in my life. And someone comes and offers you some, if it's your God, you'll take it and do whatever you have to do to get it. But if it's not, then you're discerning enough to say, I'm going to evaluate this decision and decide. We're going to talk this over and think about it because money isn't the biggest thing to me. So we, we will be able to be much more discerning. We'll be able to just stop working. We'll be able to rest if money's not God. Secondly, If we're satisfied in the gospel, it gives us the power to avoid the traps of debt, foolish endeavors, and excessive luxury. Um, 
when we tend to think that stuff will make us happy, then we do dumb things to get stuff. You know, if, you, if you're at home and you feel like, man, you know what would just make me complete? New floors. And you look at the bank account, and there isn't the money in the bank account for new floors. And you say, no, but I really need new floors for my sense of well-being and happiness. Um, this is stained linoleum, and I don't want stained linoleum. I, I, I feel like there's this ache in my soul. I've got to itch this, scratch this itch somehow. I've got to go out and make this get fixed. Then you'll go out with your credit card, put the floors on the credit card, and say, finally, now I get my piece. And we use the stuff that we want to buy like a drug and our credit cards like delivery devices. It won't satisfy. The floors won't do it for you. Those hardwoods, they'll get the first scratch on them, and you'll just be frustrated again, all over again. And then you'll be paying 18% interest on that decision that you made to buy those floors because you had this ache in your heart for consumer goods. Now, I'm all for putting in new floors. And credit cards are not called sin, specifically by the Bible, but we're warned about the stupidity of excessive debt for things we don't need. Listen to Proverbs 22, verse 7. It says, The rich rules over the poor, and the borrower is the slave of the lender. So it's not that he says borrowing money is sin. He just says when you borrow money, you become somebody's slave. And you've probably experienced that. You get the visa bill, you open it up, and you forgot you put that on there, you forgot you put that on there, and all of a sudden there's this bill that you can't pay, and now because you've got bills you can't pay, when your boss is asking you to do shady things, you feel very tempted to just say yes because you've borrowed so much money and you're the slave to Visa. And we're a nation of debt slaves where, where we've got big credit card balances. We borrow money for many, many different things, even things that are falling apart that we'll still be paying for long after they're sitting in a dump. And when the Bible says, talks about debt, it warns us about them, and, and it says, listen, it's slavery. You'll be trapped. It'll mess up your life. I mean, what happens if you've got $40,000 in credit card debt, $40,000 in card debt, and you start to get a sense that God may be calling you to go overseas to do missions? And you say, I would love to do that, but I got all these bills. You start to feel your slavery. You start to feel the way that you're trapped. And so, so while credit cards may not be sin, and I know lots of people use them as a convenience and pay them off at the end of the month, and, and that's fine, but we're warned against the traps that are inherent in just the easy access to debt that we have. You know, probably one of the things you bring up is if you've been to our website or been to the city, you see that as a church, we take credit cards. Like if people want to give, they can on a credit card. So this definitely sounds like hypocrisy here. Let me just tell you how we want people to use those. Um, The reason we take them is because some people will use debit cards and also just for convenience for people who paid off at the end of the month. If you don't have money to give, please don't put an offering on a credit card. Please don't. Just give nothing. We, we don't want you to be going into debt slavery because you feel guilty and you feel like somehow giving something is going to make your conscience feel better. Just don't give if you don't have it. Don't throw it on a credit card as a long-term debt. If you're the, we put everything on the credit card and pay it off at the end of the month, that's okay, but please don't go into credit card debt for, for our church. Um, I don't think God would bless us trying to get you to give money uh, and, and you go into debt for it. Uh, By the way, they wanted me to tell you that if you do give regularly, it also doesn't help us a ton if you're using the credit cards. It actually hurts us because we pay big fees. And so um, if you want to set it up so that your bank automatically sends checks and stuff, that's great. Um, But we pay big credit card fees. Did I do that right, Paul? Cool. Anything else I need to say about that? 
Okay, cool. <laughs> All right, so, so, so that's the deal. But, but we do not want you to be going into to debt to give to our church. It's there as a convenience, and please don't feel like that's your way to give when you haven't managed everything else right in your life. Um, make sure that you realize that when you go into to that kind of slavery, you, you're there for a long time, and it can take a long time to get out. Um, you know, even beyond credit cards, and I won't harp on this too much, let's work on being people who can start paying cash for the things that we buy, including things like cars. And I know you say that to someone in their 20s, they're like, not have a car loan? Are you serious? Yeah, our, our cars are falling apart, and we're still paying for them long after they're gone. There's something that's not wise about that. Yeah, let's start saving. You know, if your car's running right now and everything's working on it, don't just assume that's a free month. Uh, put that money aside and then use that so that when that car does finally die, it won't take long. Uh, when it does finally die, then you've got some cash to pay for it. Um, rather than going into all the details, I would just recommend, with a few reservations, but I would recommend Dave Ramsey's Financial Peace University. Uh, if you just look at your life and you say, man, we got credit card debt, I don't know how to save, I don't know how to invest, I don't know how to manage all that stuff. Rather than spend a whole lot of time on that here this morning, I would say Financial Peace University gives a lot of good advice. A um, couple different things I don't love, but it, when it comes to here's a good way to order your financial life, if, you, if things are just all out of control, uh, definitely, it's I think 120 bucks. You buy the CD set, you listen to it, and it's good stuff. It, it really helps a lot. Um, Proverbs was this book where you have basically a dad teaching his kids how to do life, and part of that was how to manage their finances, but many of us didn't have that. And so look for those teachers, look for those other sources so that we can get those things ordered so that we don't end up being slaves. Uh, Proverbs 21.17 says this, Whoever loves pleasure will be a poor man. He who loves wine and oil will not be rich. So on the one hand, we can become poor because we just go into all kinds of debt, pay all kinds of interest. On the other hand, we can become poor because we absolutely love pleasure. You know, the Bible never says that oil is a bad thing. You know, the equivalent today might be something like a spa treatment, where it never says that that's bad, but if you love that and you feel like you're going to get your pleasure from that, your peace from that, and you feel like you have to have that, then you'll be driven to throw it on the credit card. You'll be driven to spend all your money on that source of pleasure that really isn't ultimate pleasure. We need to become people who recognize that Jesus is ultimate pleasure, and then if he gives you a spa treatment, that's fine. That, that, that's secondary, and you can take or leave some of those other gifts. Proverbs 13.11 says, Wealth gained hastily will dwindle, but whoever gathers little by little will increase it. You know, another mistake we make because we feel like we have to have stuff to be happy, because we feel like we have to have it to, to have peace, we run after wealth so excessively that we'll do crazy things to get there. We don't think through the decisions we're making because we've just got this crazy, I'm going to win the lottery or get rich quick idea in our heads. The Bible says that if, if we have the gospel as our center, we have Jesus as our Lord, then little by little is okay. We're not so driven by this empty heart that we're trying to fill up with cash. Uh, next, being satisfied in the gospel frees us from the need to spend it all now. Listen to Proverbs 27, 12, when it's talking about just savings. The prudent sees danger and hides himself, but the simple go on and suffer for it. The Bible cautions us against excessive savings. Um, Jesus said some things that were very hard about saving just out of fear. But saving out of wisdom is a different thing. You know, there are things in our lives that we know are going to go wrong. Our cars are going to break down. The computer needs to be replaced. The roof on the house is starting to wear out. The furnace is eventually going to die. There are things that are going to happen. And if we're wise enough to be able to look at God's world and just know the way things work, that furnaces don't last forever, 
then we put some aside so that when that happens, we don't act shocked by it and we can pay cash for that and not put it on a credit card. We see a danger coming and we prepare for it. That's part of, part of wisdom. You know, we see a, a car insurance bill that comes every six months. It shouldn't shock us when it shows up. You know, we shouldn't get the Geico bill and say, seriously, they're still charging me? Yeah, they're going to. You're going to get that bill every six months. We should see it coming and we should prepare for it. We should see a day coming when we can't necessarily work to take care of ourselves. So preparing for that is wise too. You know, I look at, at, at my life and career and ministry and I say somewhere between 60 and 65, I'm just going to start saying crazy stuff up here. Um, like, I don't know if you've ever been in the church where you know, the pastor is 80 and says crazy stuff and he has to stay up there because he needs the paycheck. And I say, you know, by the time I'm really saying crazy stuff, I would like to be having a different role. Um, like doing something else in the church, uh, coaching other young pastors, doing the, the pre-marriage counseling, doing something else where, where somebody who, whose mind is in a stronger state can do the preaching. If I see that coming, I should probably prepare for some kind of retirement. I should probably just see that danger coming and get ready for it. So, so the Bible says wise people will be like that. Um, next, if we're wise, we have a good view of wealth, we're satisfied in the gospel, we can enjoy some of it without guilt. Now, this is some of the Proverbs we already looked at, that God gives wealth. It's okay to enjoy it. You know, if I give my kids gifts on Christmas, it's okay for them to play with those gifts. I, I don't want to say, man, I was just hoping you'd spend time with me. I, I, I want to say, no, this is, this is why I gave you those toys, so you can play with them. We can play a little bit with the stuff that God gave us without a sense of guilt. Uh, Debbie and I this week, we had some wealth. We had a $100 Delmonico's gift card and uh, went to Delmonico's for a date night dinner. Her parents were watching the kids and we just enjoyed it without any sense of guilt whatsoever. Um, just good steak, tremendous tiramisu, and then just spending time with each other, enjoying the night, went for a drive afterwards because we didn't want to come home too soon when the kids were still awake. And so I um, just enjoyed that time, and we were able to just, just get that together. It had been too long since our last date, and we were able to eat that steak without saying, man, I just kind of feel guilty about this because there are some people who don't have steak. We can enjoy some. You know, Timothy had said, the, the, Paul said in Timothy, that God gives us good things to enjoy. So we can enjoy some and enjoy them in their right place and enjoy them in moderation, but we're also called to take the wealth that God's given us and be radically generous with it. Listen to Proverbs 3, verses 9 and 10. It says, Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all of your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. So God's people have always been called to generously and radically give and honor God with the first portion of the increase that we bring in. Um, that's not just something that people made up to try to fund their churches. God said, honor him with your wealth. In the Old Testament, the way people did it is they would take a tithe. They would take the first 10% of what came in from a harvest and they would devote that. They would give that in the temple and that would be used as worship for God. And that's, that's a good standard. That's a good place to be. When we read the New Testament, it doesn't give us a percentage. Now that the temple is gone and Jesus has replaced the temple, it doesn't say, well, here's the percentage for you now. We, we don't have that indicated anywhere in the Bible. But I do know this, that when grace comes, the standard gets raised. It doesn't get lowered. So what we're called to in the New Testament is give as Jesus Christ has given to you. Radically, faithfully, and I can't give you specifics. And I just know that, that what God puts on your heart will not be too much, and that when you give generously, God does bless generosity. That's not a prosperity promise where we say, if you give $100, God will send you 1000 He doesn't promise that at all. 
Sometimes you give money and you feel the pinch. Your life is different than it would have been if you hadn't have given. But what you get back in terms of the joy and the peace and the walk with the, just the, the closeness that you feel with God because money's not your God anymore, there is reward in that. Proverbs 11.25 says, Whoever brings blessing will be enriched, and one who waters will himself be watered. So we're supposed to be so generous, we're supposed to, to give so radically, that when people look at our lives, a gospel explanation is required. You know, if your accountant is going through things at the end of the year and adding everything up, and he sees all the different ways you give, you, know, you give a portion to your church, you're helping these missionaries over here, you're helping with this ministry here, you're helping the poor over here, and if he can see that, does he look at you and say, what's wrong with you? Nobody, nobody does this. It looks like you've got some other God altogether. You must be some kind of fanatic. The way that we order our financial lives should demand a gospel explanation, where we're able to say, well, there's something more important to me than money. I don't believe that money's my security. I don't believe that money's ultimate to me. And so I'm able to treat it just like money and bless other people with it. I'm able to, to be generous with it. You, know, you ask, well, how are we doing as a church when this stuff comes up? Or, you know, are you doing this because we're in some kind of financial crisis? There's no financial crisis. We're, we're financially healthy. Uh, as the church has been growing, we've actually been saving a lot, and that's just because we're seeing that day when we don't fit here or when we don't have this space, and we may need to get another space. Um, but our offerings always come in way above what we budget, even when our budget is, is more aggressive. God has blessed us that way. But there are some ways that we could definitely improve. Uh, right now, 72% of our adult attendance gives anything at all. Um, so, so that means somewhere just shy of a third of our folks have not engaged with giving yet. And I know there are different reasons for that. Some people can't. And this is not supposed to be a guilt trip. I know some people are out of work and you don't have money. Please uh, don't feel like we're pounding into you that you have to throw something in the offering box. When, when Jesus sees this widow give two mites, he says, man, she gave more than these, these rich people were given over there. So don't feel like this is some kind of guilt trip when you really don't have any. Some people don't have any. Um, some people are uh, not sure yet whether they're engaging with our church and are saving it to give uh, to whatever church they go to. Some people are just stingy. So, so there's about a third that would fall into any of those three categories. Also, about 20% of the people in our church give about 80% of our offerings. So we have a few people who, with, who have been blessed and who are being generous, who are really carrying a lot of the load for us. Um, we could always do more for ministry. I mean, we want to plant churches everywhere. We want to see churches planted. We want to see missionaries go out. We've got a missionary up in Quebec doing an awesome job getting a church planted there. Jake's planting churches in Turkey. There, there are good things happening, and we would love to do far more. And as more comes in, we can do far more. We, so we're in good shape, no crisis or anything like that. But I think all of us do need to ask ourselves, am I honoring God with the first fruit of my increase? And if I am, then I am. That's, that's good. Um, another way that we should be using our money is to make friends. And here's what I mean. Let me just read you this proverb. Proverbs 19.4, wealth brings many new friends, but a poor man is deserted by his friend. You're going, what kind of friends are we trying to make here? Like, this sounds, sounds pretty shallow. What's he talking about? And then Jesus says it this way, in an even stronger way. Luke 16, 9, he says, And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into eternal dwellings. What is that? Like, how do you make friends for yourselves with money? And I think what he's talking about, and honestly, I think if there is a secret to some of the, the success or the growth of Grace Road, it's been this. We have some very 
hospitable people in our church. People who are opening up their homes, serving meals like crazy to people. Um, There's food at everything we do. (laughs) Like, it's just piles of it everywhere. It seems like there are people who are taking what God's blessed them with and saying, I want to use this to warmly open my home to bless other people. People who host small groups, people who are having people over for dinner at your house all the time. Um, Most of us who have gotten to know people here at the church, it's happened over dinner tables at somebody's house. You know, we don't have stuff going on during the week, most weeks, at the German house. And so we're doing stuff out in homes, out in the community. And one of the things that's going on out there is people are opening up their homes with their hospitality, which costs some money, making friends, loving people. And that's going to be a way that we have to introduce an awful lot of people to Jesus. Jesus is saying that we're making friends in a way so that those people will receive us into eternal dwellings. So somehow we make a friend, we get to heaven, and they're there waiting for us. How, how does that happen unless he's just saying, be someone who's a giver. Be someone who blesses other people. Don't just think when you're going to give, am I going to get a tax write-off for this? When you see needs that people have, bless them and try to meet those needs if you can meet them. Serve those meals, eat those dinners, go out for that coffee, use the wealth that you've got to make friends so that you can introduce people to Jesus. And he says, then they receive you into eternal dwellings. And when you read through the Old Testament, there were these tithes that people had to give to the temple, but there was also a tithe in Deuteronomy that people had to spend on the party. Like if you read it, it says, um, you find a, forgot where it is, but um, it's, he, he says, take this 10%. And um, if you need to sell the 10% of whatever comes in from your farm, so you've got the cash and it's portable, do that. And then spend it on whatever you want. And he starts to mention food and drink in this big, huge party. So, so one of those tithes was just for hospitality and just for celebration and just for eating with other people. We're supposed to use our wealth to do things like that. But what we tend to do is we tend to make wealth our security. We wrap ourselves in it. And we need a backup for our backup for our backup. And we think, now I'll feel safe. But if you've ever been on the inside of those multiple layers of backups, it never feels like enough. Famously, Nelson Rockefeller, who was the richest man in the world at the time, they asked him how much money would be enough, and his answer was just one more dollar. And that's the way it always will be for us. We'll always be running after just one more dollar if money is our God, if money satisfies us. But if money is our servant, then we can use it to do good things, to save, to be wise, to pay for our bills, but then also to bless the mission of God and his church, to bless people around us, to be hospitable, and, and to be those generous kind of people who, who make Jesus' name great. I know it's, it's awkward to talk about, but there are big heart issues at stake. If we don't talk about this, we're missing. Jesus said, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. And so if this is something we say we can't talk about that because it'll make people feel awkward, we miss out on an awful lot of the spiritual growth that we should be having. And so we need to look at ourselves and say, what am I doing with it? What am I doing with my wealth? If you're really poor and you're just falling behind, ask yourself, how's that affecting me? Is Is there greed in me? Am I starting to get bitter against rich people? Am I getting bitter against life or bitter against God? I do really evaluate what does the way that I spend money say about who I love and who my God is. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes for a minute, please. You know, Christians, the biggest concern is not the percentage that we're giving. The biggest concern is that we tend to make wealth our God. 
And so if there's an area that we need to repent of this morning, I think that's probably one of them. And we think of all the things that God calls us to do, or, or, or all the things that God is for us, and we tend to replace him with money. He says he'll never leave us or forsake us. We find our security in cash. He says that he provides all of our needs according to his riches and glory, and we're trusting in a job ultimately to do that. So it would be good to take the next couple minutes to confess those things to God, to confess the ways that we've found our identity in our money, our security in our money, our peace in our money. To quietly confess those to him and, and say, God, I want to find my peace and my security in you. I want to trust in you again. I want you to be my God. Now, if you're here and uh, you came in and you're not a Christian, this is probably what you expected. <laughs> um, you probably expected for us to uh, talk about money the whole time this morning. And we don't, don't do that every week, but we do do it sometimes. But the reason that we do is because there are heart issues at stake. Um, all of us make things gods that are not God. Whether it's wine or wealth or women or, or whatever it is, we, we find something to run after. All of us worship something. We're all driven by something. All of those somethings we worship, if they're not Jesus, destroy us in the end. If we worship ourselves, we're promised pride comes before the fall. If we worship money, we're, we're promised that in the end we just end up poor. We get destroyed by every God we worship unless it's a good and gracious God, and that's who Jesus is. You know, the Christian message is not give a bunch of money and get God to like you. Um, you know, I promise putting money in that offering box on your way out does not improve your standing with God. Uh, it doesn't make you right with him in any way. It doesn't get you to heaven. It doesn't get your sins forgiven. The Christian message is that we're all sinful. We all deserve God's judgment. We all have made other gods besides him. Those gods are destroying us, and in the end, we stand before God. We're judge, judged for our sins, and because he wasn't our God, we face his wrath, and we die and go to hell. That's bad news. But then the good news is that that God came to us, that Jesus Christ, who is all God and all man, loved us. And though he was rich, he became poor so that we could have everlasting life. Jesus came and he died on the cross to pay for our sins. All the wrath of God that we deserved, he took on himself. He was buried and he rose again so that the Bible says, whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. So if you're here today and you recognize that separation from God, that there's something else that's been driving you, you've been running after some other Savior, some other God, then trust Jesus. Trust today that he's a God who's good to you. Trust in his death on your behalf. Trust that he rose again and that if you trust in him one day, you'll rise again to new life with him with sins forgiven too. The Bible does promise that whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved and so, so from the depth of your heart, you can call out and say, God, I know I'm sinful. I know I've run after these other gods, but I turn from all of them and I turn to you as the only way of forgiveness and salvation. Jesus, forgive me and make me new. And he promises that if that's the cry of your heart, he does receive you. He does make you new.